amen, amen, amen. Well, good morning uh, and uh, welcome. Let me invite you to get your Bibles out and you can join me in Jeremiah 11. That's where we'll start. Uh, by God's grace, we'll make our way all the way through chapter 13 and it'll be only by God's grace. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of content and real estate in front of us. But as you're turning uh, to Jeremiah 11, I want you to think for a moment about a promise. I want you to think about promises, and, and I want you to think about or consider uh, whether you've been on either side of a broken promise. Maybe you've broken a promise. Maybe you've had someone who's broken a promise to you. They didn't keep their word. They didn't follow through on what uh, they, they said. <clears throat> and as you think about that broken promise, here's what I want us to consider for a, a moment. I want you to consider what does that broken promise cost? What does it cost in terms of integrity? What does it cost in terms of time and energy? What does it cost relationally? Typically, it costs more than we think. Now, as you think about a broken promise, what I want you to think about is, I want you to think about breaking a covenant. Because breaking a promise pales in comparison to breaking a covenant. And yet the text that we come to this morning is going to move us to seeing the seriousness of breaking God's covenant. In fact, here's where God's word is going to lead us this morning, this idea right here, that breaking God's covenant subjects us to the promised curse and inescapable disaster. Let me say that again. Breaking God's covenant subjects us to the promised curse and inescapable disaster. Loved ones, in short, we are looking at a text that is going to highlight the profound dilemma that confronts all of us in our sin. And so we would do well, before we go any further, to stop and ask God to humble us, to give us wisdom, to give us insight, to give us clarity, that we would hear the truths of His Word. So we're going to do that now. Why don't you join me? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into this text. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You that the Word of God will do the work of God. God, we pray that Your Spirit would have the freedom to move and work in and amongst Your people. God, we pray even now that, that, that the sharpness and the intensity with which your word is going to come and fall upon your people. God, that it would not be rebuffed, that it would not be rejected, that it would not be pushed or pressed against. But God, with humility, that we would receive what it is that you want to entrust to us here this morning. So God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes that would see, hearts that would know and understand the fullness of your word, that your spirit would have the freedom and the latitude to accomplish the work that you desire to do here this morning. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. This morning, God, praying for Ciudad de Gracia and for Pastor Abiel Diaz. God, praying for that body of believers, that you'd be doing a good work in them in the same way that we desire that you do a good work in us. So God, would you come now, accomplish your purposes for your glory. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is The Broken Covenant. Uh, the broken covenant. Again, this idea that breaking God's covenant subjects us to the promised curse and inescapable uh, disaster. Now, I think it's important for us. Let's just remind ourselves we've been plowing through the book of Jeremiah uh, for the last month and a half. Uh, but, but if you remember the first 24 chapters of the book of Jeremiah, let's put this in context, right in the middle of this, was all around God's warning and accusation and the indictment of Israel. In short, the first 24 chapters of the book of Jeremiah is that God loves you and I enough to tell us the hard word. God loves you enough to say the thing that you don't want to hear, but that you need to hear. And there's going to be more of that here this morning. In fact, where God begins is explicitly stating to Israel that they have broken his covenant. In fact, that's what we see in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 11. We see God's covenant is broken. Let me read here the first eight verses of chapter 11. It says this. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God. 
that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. Then I answered, so be it, Lord. And the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did not. God's covenant is broken. And in fact, what we see in verses 1 through 8 is that God's covenant has been ignored. God's covenant has been ignored. We talk about this, this word covenant, and the reality is covenant language permeates this text. Right? You see this word cursed, and oath, and command, and warned, and of course the word covenant that shows up over and over and over again. And a few moments ago, Dan read from Deuteronomy 28, where God laid out the stipulations for the nation of Israel. If you're faithful, right, if you obey, you will be blessed. Right? That was the word that showed up over and over and over again. Does God say anything about blessing in these verses? He does not. What's the other word that God brings up in Deuteronomy 28? Cursed. You see that word anywhere in here? That's in verse 3. See, what God is laying out, he's implying you have broken, you have violated, you have transgressed the covenant that I made with you. God's covenant has been ignored. In fact, make note of two things. Very clearly unfolding in verses 1 through 8, really in totality, that we see this in, in a number of places. First of all, make note of this that God calls his people to obey his word. I mean, there's roughly 15 different times in different ways in these eight verses that God references the people are to obey his word. He's saying, here, listen, do, obey. And yet the response from the people is defiance. Now, now God has been clear. The people have ignored the covenant. God called them to obey. They chose to, re- to reject. But, but look, look, at, look at your Bibles. I mean, it's, it, there's no ambiguity in this. God expects that we would do what he commands. That's why he keeps saying, listen, hear, obey, do. And here's the danger for Judah. Here's, what, here's what's going on in the hearts and the minds of the people of Judah at this point in time. They have slid into this place where they have taken their position before God for granted, and they're actually using their position to justify their rebellion. They're saying, you know, we're, we're the people of God, right? We're the people that belong to God. Um, and so they would point to their position while ignoring the, the practice that was supposed to accompany it. And so they ended up in this place where they've rewritten in their hearts and their minds what fidelity looks like, what righteousness looks like. They've actually created their own word in their own image. That's why God's rejecting their offerings, God's saying, I, I don't want you to think this, this, this ritual that, that, that's absent of any heart or desire of me. I don't want you to think that this is somehow acceptable. And loved ones, you and I have to see this because I would argue that we face an identical danger, an, an identical danger in our day, in our age, in our context, and in our setting. We're, we're actually susceptible to the same thing where, where we will allow our position uh, to, 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 that's what we'll hold to, but we'll, we'll, we'll reject or we'll even allow the position to undermine or fail to inform the practice that should accompany who we are in Christ. Right? So, so what, what, what happens is we're like, well, you know, I'm the pe- we're the people of God. So we can do blank. Or it's okay if we do this or think this or believe this. And so what happens is we start allowing the cultural pressures and we start allowing the the cultural attitudes to begin to reshape biblical principles and biblical values. I'll I'll give you a couple examples. I I could give you 20, but I'll just give you a couple for the sake of time. First of all, here's what you you pay attention. If you want to know what a church believes, ask them what they think about sin. Because increasingly, more and more, here's what you hear people defining sin as. They'll say, you know, sin is when you're not true to yourself. No, that's rubbish and nonsense. That's heresy. Sin is defiance against God. Right? And so then, of course, that, that, that lays the groundwork for all kinds of different ways. That we let, we let cultural attitudes and cultural values shape how we think about things. Think about what's going on in our day and age. Right? That, that, uh, allegedly, there's confusion on gender. We, we, we don't know who's a man or a woman. No, no, God already determined that. 
That's not up for grabs. That, that, that's not something that you and I determine. God's already laid that out. We're not free to create our own word. We're called to obey God's word. That's the issue with Israel. They didn't hear. They didn't listen. They didn't obey. And God's saying, you've broken the covenant. Loved one, here's a question you got to ask yourself. Are you endeavoring to hear, to listen, to obey, to do what God has said? Are you endeavoring to allow the word of God to direct your life, your thinking, your speaking, your relating, your conduct? God calls his people to obey his word. But notice also what we see here in verses 1 through 8. We see that God calls his people to declare his word. So, so if you look, right, like, like notice that this word comes first to Jeremiah. Verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah, right? And so then 2 through 5, God's saying, here's what I want you to speak. And then look at the end of verse 5. Look at how Jeremiah responds. Then I answered, so be it, Lord. Literally, amen. That's what he's saying. Amen. Verse 6, and the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words. Jeremiah has a responsibility to declare, to herald, to proclaim God's word. And loved ones, so do you and I. The word of God is to be proclaimed by the people of God. We have that same calling. Jesus said in Matthew 28, All authority has been granted to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then, I I forgot, what does he say next? Tell me, what does he say? declaring to them all that I've taught you. Or think about what he says in Acts 1. You shall be my, what? Witnesses. Right? You, you're, you're the mouthpiece. You're the messenger. You're the one who's vocalizing the gospel. It's on us to make Jesus known. Are we making Jesus known? Is our life oriented in a way that allows us to share the gospel with our coworkers, with our classmates, with our teammates, with our neighbors, with our family, with our friends. And not, not only are we living in a way where that's the case, here, here's a question I think a lot of us have to wrestle with when it comes to thinking about sharing the gospel. Do you and I, do, do you and I leave margin in our life to be able to share the gospel? Are, are we committed to having people sit at our table, sit in our homes, right, in our backyard with us? Are we committing time to that? And further, are we willing to go into various spaces, maybe spaces and places you wouldn't choose to go on your own, but right, you'll go because of gospel purposes. Jeremiah is willing to embrace God's call, even though it's not going to go well for him. We'll see that here in a few moments. But God help us, God help us, we'd be willing to embrace our responsibility regardless of what comes from it. God's covenant is ignored. And so notice what we see here in verses 9 through 17, that God's punishment is decreed. God moves from an indictment to declaring the punishment that comes. So verse 9 and 10, God is summarizing once again that they've broken his covenant. In fact, I'll pick it up at the end of verse 10. He says, the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Now look at verse 11, right? Here here comes the punishment. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will, will go and cry to gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. And he goes on in verses 14 through 17. God essentially says to Jeremiah, don't bother praying. Uh, I'm not going to listen. These people have made up their hearts, right? This punishment is, is, is steadfast and sure. It's coming. But what I want us to notice, I want us to look particularly at verse 11 and 12, And I want you to notice three distinct aspects of punishment uh, that God unfolds here uh, with respect to breaking his covenant. First of all, look at verse 11. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. One of the punishments for breaking God's covenant is that that, that God will bring disaster. In fact, that disaster is, it's inescapable. That's what he says. By the way, God promised this long ago. This is not a surprise. Right? They know this. If we defy God, there's consequences. If we obey God, there's blessing. So think of it like this. Um, if you've ever rented a car, 
You know that when you rent that car, you sign various pages and you initial different pages, a bunch of legalese on there. And essentially what all those pages tell you that if you go out and you wreck that car, you are going to be responsible to pay for those damages. Right? So if you go out and, and you're a bad driver and you're running into people in a parking lot and you wrap it around a light pole and you're bringing it back into Hertz, right? And the, the, the bumpers are bouncing off the ground and there's dents in the door, you're not going to be surprised when they're like, uh, we'll be in contact. You're going to owe us some money. You know you're getting billed for that. Right? That, that, that's how it works. And it's the same here. There's no legitimate sense of what do you mean disaster's coming? They know it's coming. Because they've defied God. And loved ones, we're, we're not immune to this. We're not exempt to this. What you have to understand, if you choose sin, if you choose sin, you are choosing to suffer. You are choosing disaster. Let me just say it this way. A defiance toward God warrants a consequence from God. You hear that? You want to defy God, just know what you are warranting is a consequence from God. God will bring disaster. Look what he goes on to say, verse, into verse 11, though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. God will refuse to listen. In fact, he says the same thing in verse 14. He says, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. We saw this back in chapter 7. This is far from the first time we've seen this. And yet, if we're just being honest, if we're just being honest, I don't know about you, but every time I see in the Bible God saying, I'm not going to listen to them, it's jarring to see that, isn't it? You just kind of recoil a little bit, and you're like, how can God say that? No, no, God will always listen. Well, no, he's telling us there's times I'm not going to listen. And maybe you hear that, and maybe you're bothered by that. Maybe you're angry about that. Maybe you're frustrated. How, how dare God not listen? No, here's the irony. God's simply giving to Israel what they've been giving to him for centuries. God's like, oh, you don't like you? Oh, you don't like it when you're ignored? Oh, that's kind of rich. You've been doing that since I brought you out of Egypt. Really, what God's saying, if it bothers you, don't do it. But loved ones, what, what, what this brings, to, brings you and I to is, is, is a really important reality. We think about prayer. Let's just talk for a moment about what we would call maybe un, uh, unheard or hindered prayer. So let me, let me be really, really clear. Like no ambiguity whatsoever on this. What you have to know is there is a prayer that God will refuse and that God will reject. Did you hear that? There's prayer that God will say, I, I don't want anything to do with that. And that prayer, that prayer is a prayer that will attempt to reduce God to a cold, impersonal, religious entity that I transactionally interact with as if he's a cosmic genie of sorts. If you want to be blunt, it's a prayer that attempts to exploit God for personal gain and strips any relational dynamic from what should happen in prayer. And God says, I will always reject that. God is not some genie. I rub the lamp, and he comes out, and now he's going to dispel my three wishes. God's not playing that game. God doesn't care if you say the right words, but your heart is, is far from him. In fact, this is far from the only place God says things like this. Let me just give you one other example real quick. Flip back just a few pages. Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. People talking about fasting, which really is synonymous with worship and prayer. Here's what they say in Isaiah 58, verse 3. Right? The people are, are, are accusing God. They're saying, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Here's God's response. He says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Verse 4, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Listen to what God says next. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. God's like, I'm not listening to that nonsense. You can, you can say all the words you want. I'm not playing that game. And some of you, some of you, may, maybe you're even wondering, does God hear my prayer? Is God refusing my prayer? Right? I feel like my prayer hits the ceiling and it goes no further. Here's the question you have to ask yourself. When you go to the Lord in prayer, are you treating God like a cosmic vending machine? Or are you treating him like the tender, gracious, compassionate father that he is? In fact, maybe part of what God's word is doing in this moment is exposing 
that for you, when you pray, you, you, you're praying not to commune with God, but to extract something from God. And God's saying, I don't want it. I'm not interested. Get away from me with that nonsense. I will not listen to them. That's a terrifying word. Then he goes on, look at what he says. Even though they're going to cry to him, he's not going to listen. Verse 12, then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. Thirdly, this third punishment, we see that God will expose. In fact, God's going to expose in a couple different ways. First of all, God's going to expose the futility of idols. Right? Once again, these idols that cannot help, they cannot save, they cannot rescue. We saw last week, man, you're crying out to a scarecrow in a field. It's all you've got. But God is also exposing the hearts of the people here. See, what God is revealing in this moment is that in, the, in these people, their heart, what they're interested in is themselves. That's what they're interested in. And they will use God to get what they want. That's why they'll go to God. Well, God didn't give me what I want, so I'll go to the idols, and maybe they can give me what, what I want, but they'll pursue whoever because there's no element of fidelity in this. I'm just looking to get what I want. God's exposing the hearts of the people. He's like, you don't have any interest in being restored. You don't really care about being reconciled or right with me. You just want the pain to go away. You want the trouble to go away. You want the hardship to go away. You want the difficulty to go away. You just want to make it stop. Okay, church, you've got to ask yourself, is that how you approach the Lord? Is that how I approach the Lord? Is, is this how we come to the Lord? God, I just want you to make the hard thing go away. Think about it in your life. Think about the most difficult situation in your life right now. And when you go to the Lord in prayer around that item, are you asking God to make it stop and to make it go away? Or are you asking God that he would conform you to his image in the midst of this? Are you asking God that he would deepen your love and your trust for him in the midst of this? Are you asking God to make you more faithful to him in the midst of this? Maybe the bigger issue certainly was for Israel. Maybe it's for you. That God's just exposing what's going on in your heart. That what you want is you want to use God. You don't want to love God. And God's saying, when you break my covenant, when you ignore my covenant, I'm going to graciously expose what's going on in your heart so that you can repent and be restored. God's saying, you've broken the covenant. I'm decreeing punishment, but I'm doing it so you can be restored. And yet this leads to a fascinating shift, really, that reveals the hardness of the people's heart and the difficulty of Jeremiah's task. Because notice, starting in verse 18, not only is God's covenant broken, but what we see next is that God's prophet is threatened. God's prophet is now threatened by the people. The people's response to God's word is they're going to threaten the prophet. And if you're like, man, that's a bummer for Jeremiah. No, no, that extends to you and I as well. This is very much for all of the people of God. Because this entire situation is going to get very, very personal for Jeremiah. Because he is now informed of this plot, this scheme to eliminate him. Look at what it says, starting in verse 18. It says, the Lord made it known to me and I knew then you showed me their deeds. What, Jeremiah? Here it is. But I was gentle, but I was like a gentle lamb led to slaughter. I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the hearts and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I've committed my cause. Jeremiah's like, oh, they're, they're trying to get rid of me. They're trying, to, they're trying to destroy me. So just make note of this. We will suffer for doing good. You hear that? We will suffer for doing good. Now, now the, the vast majority of the book of Jeremiah is about suffering because of rebellion and sin. Okay, but th th there is a sub-theme that's going on in the book of Jeremiah. It really played out in the person of Jeremiah that we're going to suffer for doing good. Now, this is the first threat that comes to Jeremiah, but this is far from the last threat that we'll see unfold in the book. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be put in shackles. Uh, he, he's going to be threatened with death. He's going to be thrown into a cistern. He's going to be in prison. There's going to be a number of ways that Jeremiah is going to be threatened and harmed over the course of the book. But here's what you can't miss. All of this is happening because Jeremiah was faithful to what God called him to. 
The people around him hated what God had to say, and they attacked Jeremiah because of it. They plot his harm because of his obedience. Don't miss this, because you and I, you and I may find ourselves in similar, if not identical, circumstances. Simply put, as believers, we may suffer for doing what is good and what is righteous. Now, we spent the better part of three months in the book of 1 Peter earlier this year, and so if you were there for any part of that, we've already had that drilled down into us. But I want to run there for just a moment. I want to remind you uh, over and over again of what Peter told us with respect to suffering for doing good or righteousness or, or justice. All right, here's what Peter says. This isn't even all of it. This is just maybe the high-level stuff uh, in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.19, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 1 Peter 3.14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter 4.16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. And then Peter's really crescendo summary of all of this, we see in verse 19 of chapter 4, he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Simply put, we will suffer for doing good. So church, you got to get your head and you got to get your heart right about this. You got to make sure we understand what's, what's really going on, what's at stake, what, what, what this means. Uh, because much... Let's be honest, almost exclusively all of our experience in our lifetime, in our land, is contrary to what we're seeing here. Believers in the United States just haven't faced much, if, if really any, persecution or pressure or suffering or mistreatment for our faith. Here's what you have to understand. We're the exception. This is not the norm. We're the exception. We're the exception today. If you go to most countries, they don't have an experience like you and I have. So not only are we the exception today, we are certainly the exception historically. This has not been the case historically, and most importantly, we are absolutely the exception biblically. You know why the apostles didn't have a retirement plan? Because they were martyred before they ever got there. It wasn't going to happen. They weren't going to live to see it. And so we, so, so we have to make sure our thinking and our hearts and our minds are right about this because if not, if not, here's what happens. When suffering comes, and I promise you, it's coming. When it comes, we're not going to be ready. We're not going to be prepared. We're going to be disillusioned. We're going to be confused. We're going to be like, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Why is this happening? When all the while, it's like, it's like man, I've told you over and over and over again, this is normative for believers, you have to be ready for this, church. You have to be prepared for this. Otherwise, man, it's going to eat us alive. Because uh, how, how do we prepare? How do we get ready? What, what do we do with this? Well, I, I think the same way that Jeremiah prepared for this, that he went back over and over and over again to that commission that God gave him in chapter 1. That he was reminded that God said, I'm, I'm, go where I send you, say what I tell you to say, and know that I'm always going to be with you. Simply put, that we remember the promises of God. Right? When you remember God's promises, that's what enables continued faithfulness. Right? We've got to hold fast to those promises. You've got to understand, we're going to suffer for doing good. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Get your head and your heart right about that. But inasmuch as we understand what's going to happen, notice, right, and, and, and hold fast to this. Let this be a source of hope. Look at what we see in 21 to 23. God will punish the wicked. So here's what God says. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life and say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will punish them. He talks about them dying by the sword or dying by famine. He says in verse 23, none of them shall be left. But look what he says at the end of verse 23. For I will bring disaster upon the man of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. God's saying, I'm, I'm going to address it. I'm going to address the wicked. They're, they're not going to go unpunished. They're not going to get away with it. But... It's not going to be immediate, right? In the year of their punishment. It's not going to happen today, Jeremiah. Which, which here's what you have to know. The, the men of Anatoth, this is family. Right? These aren't random strangers. This is where he's from. These are his relatives that want to see him die. 
It's going to happen, just not happen today. And so, loved ones, we must trust God's sovereignty, that in his timing and in his choosing, that he will determine when the wicked are to be punished. It will happen, but God will determine it. We've got to trust him. Let me just make one other note here. Notice that what the wicked want to do, look at the end of verse 21. Look at what they say. Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hands. See, here's what the wicked want to do. They want to silence God's word. That's what the wicked want to do. They want to silence God's word. If you keep prophesying, we're going to kill you. It's not just an Old Testament issue. In fact, if you go read Acts 4, you see an almost identical scenario. Right? Peter and John preaching, and they're talking about the name of Jesus, and what do the religious leaders tell them? Quit speaking, quit teaching in the name of Jesus. It's a New Testament issue. It's a today issue. The wicked desire to see God's word be silenced, which is why you and I cannot be silent. But we must continue to proclaim and continue to make known the truth of, of God's great and glorious gospel. So we're going to suffer for doing good. God will punish the wicked. And I don't know about you, but if you're emotionless at this point, check your pulse. I don't know what's going on. All right, but Jeremiah, Jeremiah, he responds with lament. In fact, what we see at the beginning of chapter 12 is that lament is the proper response to our suffering. Here's, here's what a lament is, right? A lament is an expression of sorrow or grief in the form of a prayer. And what's inherent in a lament is, is a sense of confusion or a sense of disorientation, right? Why, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? Why is tragedy upon me? These types of things that we see in, in, in all the laments of the Scriptures, in fact, what we see with Jeremiah here is we see what we see all over the place in the Bible. We see the process of lament unfold. And so even if you find yourself kind of anxious and stirred up and like, man, we're going to suffer and, 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 and God's going to punish the wicked, but it's not going to be today. And how do I respond? Jeremiah is going to lay out how we're to respond. We respond in lament. In fact, notice right, these three critical aspects that really characterize biblical lament. Look at what he says in 12.1. He says, righteous are you, O Lord. When I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. So in the process of lament, here's the first step, always, always, always in the process of, of lament is that we have to face God in lament. Do you notice that Jeremiah, Jeremiah's not going to his buddies. Jeremiah's not going to someone else. Jeremiah's not turning his back from God, but he's going to God, right? Face to face before the Lord. You cannot lament if, if you're not willing to get before God. Now, here's our problem, right? Our problem is too often, we're just not honest enough with God. Right? We, we want to sanitize or airbrush our frustrations, our discouragements, our disappointments. And so, so, so maybe we don't feel like I can be honest. So I turn my back and I'm like, well, oh man, I'm so mad at God, but, but I won't face him. Or we'll whisper it. Well, but God already knows. Just get face to face. Get in front of him. We choose to face God. Secondly, Jeremiah poses the questions. Look at what he says. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? You ever wondered that? Like, for real, why, why do the wicked prosper? I, mean, I don't know about you. I, I watch the news, and I just see a bunch of jerks that look like they're living the good life. Like, why do the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Not only that, but look at what he says. You plant them, and they take root. They, they grow and produce fruit. You're near in their mouth and you're far from their heart. He's like, God, do you not see who they really are? See, not only are we to face God in our lament, but we're to express an honest complaint before God. Jeremiah is being unflinchingly honest. Like, why, why, why do the wicked prosper? It's the same thing the psalmist says in Psalm 73. Why do the wicked, why do the wicked prosper? See, true lament demands honest expression before God. That's the pathway to healing. That's the pathway to restoration. So we're, we're honest before God. Further, here, just make note of this. God's not afraid of what you think. Do you hear that? God's not afraid of what you think. We've got to quit acting like God is this timid, insecure guy that is afraid of what you and I really think. He can handle all of it and then some. If anyone's timid and insecure, it's you and I, not him. Will you choose to express honestly before God and lament? And then notice, verse 3, 
Middle of verse 3 says, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. See, the third step in lament is that we ask God to act. Right? Our, our lament should culminate in asking God to act. We're not taking things in our own hands. I'm not going to do this on my own. I'm asking God, God, would you act on behalf of me? Would you act on behalf of your people? It's not just a vent session. We're petitioning God. God, would you act, move, work in this? Will you choose to ask God to act? See, because here, here's what lament does. Here's how lament frees us. First of all, it's a gospel reminder. And I, I'm just going to continue to give myself over to the Lord. Just giving myself over to the Lord. Once again, secondly, I'm going to trust God's power. Jeremiah is not going out trying to handle this. He's trusting the Lord to handle this. And then he's going to release himself to God's will. He's going to choose to embrace whatever it is that God chooses to entrust. God, all right, you, you line this up. There's freedom in that. But we've got to be willing to face God. We've got to be willing to express an honest complaint before God. And then we've got to ask God to act. It's the proper response is this lament. And so on the heels of this, God begins to speak. And really, there's two things that God says throughout the rest of chapter 12. We see God's rejection and God's promise. God's rejection and God's promise. So look at verses 7 through 13. And what we see, first of all, is God's rejection. And notice that he's rejecting Israel. Look at what he says. Verse 7, I've forsaken my house. I've abandoned my heritage. I've given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She's lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. There's a word. Verse 9, is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go assemble all the wild beasts. Bring them to devour Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They've trampled down my portion. They've made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate. But no man lays it to heart. This is God's rejection of Israel. Now, one of the things that's, that's fascinating about this text, if you look at verse 7, he refers to Israel as his beloved. But then in verse 8, he says he hates her. Like, what? What's going on, right? God, how can you say you love them and, and, and also hate them? Like, what, what do we do with this? Well, we have to understand what's implied. Okay, first of all, we, you see that word hate in the Bible. Hate is not emotionally driven like it is in, in our context or in our setting. Hate in the Bible is always in the context of choosing or rejecting. Hence this idea of God's rejection of Israel. He says, I've, I, I hate her. It's not that I'm emotionally displeased with her. It's that I am choosing to reject her. Think of Jacob and Esau. Right? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's not like God saying, oh, I can't stand that Esau guy. He's like, no, that's not the line the promise is coming through. I haven't chosen him, I chose his brother. And so don't miss right, the poignancy with which God is speaking to Israel here. He's saying, hey, people of Jacob, I'm looking at you as though you're Esau right now. That's what he's saying. I'm going to remove my protective presence. Why? Well, because of their defiance before God. Verse 10, they've destroyed my vineyard. They've made it a desolation. And so what's God's response? Verse 12, for the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. See, sin's penalty is always comprehensive. It's no respecter of persons. No one defies God and gets away with it. We're either graciously disciplined or we're going to be given over to wrath. Now, think about that for a moment. Think about the discipline of God. And that, that seems scary. Maybe even terrifying. But to be disciplined by God, that, that is not the scary scenario. That is not what you and I should be terrified by. What is far more terrifying is that God would do nothing and just give you over to your sin. Because discipline is what legitimizes the relationship. God disciplines those that belong to him. So the fact that God is disciplining Israel in this moment, right, he, he, it's, a, it's an act of disciplining love. In, in fact, it feeds into what we see next. Look at verse 14 through 17. Here's the promise. 
It's God's conditional promise. And, and here's what's stunning. It's primarily directed to the nations, although Judah is certainly included in it. Look at what he says in verse 14. This is incredible. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors, all you wicked nations who touch the heritage that I've given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I'll pluck them up from their land and I'll pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I've plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them and I'll bring uh, them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. You're like, is he talking about the nations or is he talking about Judah? And the answer is yes. Verse 16, and it shall come to pass. If they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. This is incredible. God's going to punish Judah and the nations. And yet embedded in that word of judgment is God reminding them of his compassion, which is stunningly made available both to Judah and to all of the nations. This is an invitation for all of the nations to repent of their sin and that they can turn to the Lord. Right? He says, if you will turn from your wicked ways, you can become, right? you, you can be invited and you can be built up in the midst of my people. This is incredible. Right? We, we, we see God's heart for the nations. Right? This was always God's intent, that the gospel would go to all. We see God's purposes. I'm going to refine and I'm going to judge Israel, but I'm also going to invite restoration and reconciliation. And what we see here in spades is God's grace. Israel's defiant. Right? They've broken the covenant. The very nations that encourage them to break the covenant are the same people that this word is coming to. Right, God is speaking a compassionate word to defiant Israel and the rebellious nations. Make note of this, that God's compassion will always precede a person's repentance. See, God's compassion will always precede a person's repentance. That, 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 that's what's happening here. Romans 2, right? it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And what we see going on here in this text is how God's punishment is actually enabling God's purposes. Israel's continuing in their defiance. They're not loved well to persist in this. They're loved well to be rebuked and confronted and have this addressed. And so God is lovingly intervening, right? He's disciplining them for their good. God will do this in your life as well. God will lovingly intervene. God will lovingly discipline because that is what you and I need. That is what is best. God disciplines, or God's discipline is a proof of God's love for you and I. You hear that? God's discipline is a proof that God loves you. And so here's what you and I, here's what we gotta quit doing. We have to quit equating God's love with our prosperity and our comfort and our ease. That, 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 that's one small aspect of the totality of God's love, right? God's discipline is an equal measure of God's love to us. And so God's kindness, God's love in your life might actually be reflected in the way that God chooses to out and expose sin in your life so that you can repent and get free of that sin. God's love and kindness in your life may be that God will crush your idol so that you will serve him fully. Here, watch this one. God's love and discipline in our life might be to allow for the decline of a nation so that we will quit loving this world and live for the kingdom of God. God's love and kindness for his people is that he will allow hardship so that you and I are driven back unto him. This is what Spurgeon talks about. I've learned to kiss the wave that thrusts me upon the rock of ages. God's conditional promise here is, is this stunning act of compassionate grace, and it's all embedded in the context of God's discipline for rebellion. This is gospel glory right here. All that we would see, God's grace in the ways that he chooses to correct and reform and refine and sanctify his people. God's rejection is tied to his promise. God's discipline is tied to his love. That's what he's doing for this rebellious people and loved ones. That's what he's done for you and I. Praise God for that. And then in chapter 13, which will really lead into what we see in 14 and 15 next week, which is just even more ruin, uh, but we see here God's punishment of rebellion. God's punishment of rebellion. And so he gives us two examples uh, in 1 through 14, and then one final element uh, in 15 through 27. Now, I'm not going to read through all of this. I'm just going to summarize this for the sake of 
time, but I want you to note there's three things, three distinct things tied to God's punishment here in chapter 13. Here's the first. Look at verses 1 through 11. It's God's punishment of ruin. It's God's punishment of ruin. So some of you maybe are familiar with the the, the whole loincloth thing, right? God tells Jeremiah to get a loincloth and to wear it, but to to not spoil it. And then then he says, I want you to go hide it in the cleft of this rock. So Jeremiah goes on this journey, and he hides it in the rock, and he he leaves it. And uh, I I don't know of any garment of clothing that can be left outside for any length of time and is not utterly spoiled and ruined. Uh, This this loincloth is no different. God tells him to go back, and he gets it. And Jeremiah's like, it's ruined. And God's like, exactly. Exactly. And so that's a metaphor for my people. They've been ruined in their idolatry. They've been ruined in their sin. They won't cling to me, but instead they'll cling to their idols. They've ruined themselves in ignoring me and my word. Which really, loved ones, this is a word for all of us. Asking, are we clinging to God or are we attempting to cling to our idols? Are we giving ourselves over to the world? Or to someone else, or are we giving ourselves over to the Lord? The punishment is their ruin. They're ruined. Because they've pursued false gods. Second image we see is in verses 12 through 14, and it's God's punishment of destruction. Now it begins, it doesn't start so ominous, it actually seems to start like a celebration. He says in verse 12, you shall speak to them this word, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jar shall be filled with wine. Like, that's a promising start. And they'll say to you, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? And you're like, also? Seems like a pretty promising start. Then God says, oh, by the way, tell them this. Behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of the land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, Here it is, verse 14. And I will dash them one against another, fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. This here is the punishment of destruction. The people are destroyed because of their rebellion, where, where verses 1 through 11 is, is how we've defied God. Verses 12 through 14 is God's response to our rebellion and defiance against God. And, and here's something you have to keep in mind. When you see wine in the Bible, well, let me ask you, what, what, a cup of wine is synonymous with what? Anyone know? I heard it. Someone said it. Say it louder. Wrath. Right? The, 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 to drink the cup of wine is to drink the wrath of God. So now I want you to think about this. This isn't a fun party. Right? The, these jars that are full to the brim are actually full of God's wrath. You're like, oh, there's no celebration at all in this. Is the, is the absence or the, the antithesis of celebration? That's the whole point. Their rebellion prompts their destruction. You've got to understand, your rebellion will prompt destruction in your life. In the areas in your life where there's rebellion. And know that that, that, will, that will bring about God's destruction. And so Jeremiah finishes by talking about this third punishment, the punishment of exile. And really, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's an issue of exile and an issue of, of shame and humiliation that, that, that categorizes uh, verses 15 to 27. Let me just read a few of the verses here. I'll make a couple notes and we'll be done. He says, verse 15, hear and give, give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Really saying, hey, do what you haven't done. Why don't you listen for once? Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes, makes it deep darkness. He's like, man, if you would just listen, there's, there's still hope. There's still this invitation of potential grace. Then look at verse 17. But if you will not listen, oh man, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. See, Jeremiah is going to weep because he knows what's coming for the people. Your failure to listen is going to lead to your captivity and to your demise. See, this third punishment is God's punishment of exile. And Jeremiah here has this, this, this position to look at the people. Maybe you've seen this. I can tell you this is unequivocally the worst part of my job. Is to sit with people, to talk with people. To give counsel, to give input, to give advice. And to watch it be rejected. And to know that rejecting that is going to lead to, to destruction and devastation in their life. It's utterly gut-wrenching. That's why Jeremiah is weeping. Because he's watching these people that he loves refuse to hear God's word and ruining their lives. So he weeps. Because what he knows, look at verse 19. 
The cities of the Negev are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. His point is, your sin has brought about your ruin, and this is the punishment of rebellion. See, breaking God's covenant subjects us to the promised curse and to inescapable disaster. This is the profound dilemma that exists with our sin. And yet, loved ones, as we think about that, here's what you got to understand. The gospel is most glorious when we're most honest about our sin. That's where the gospel shines the brightest. That's where it's most glorious, is when we see the fullness of what God has done, right? That we've broken the covenant, that we've rejected God. Not just Israel, this is true of us, right? We should suffer this same fate, and yet the glories of what Christ has done. You and I will not be exiled. You and I will not suffer the wrath that we deserve, but we will instead live under the compassion of God who is inviting us to restoration solely out of his goodwill and for his good pleasure. That's our hope, right? That's our joy. That's what enables us to live properly. That's what allows us to desire more, to G- more of Jesus. And God help us. That's what would be true of us as a people. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do ask Lord, that you would help us to see the ruin of our sin, the destruction in our sin, the reality of brokenness in our lives, in our world, but most pointedly in the covenant that we have violated. So, Father, we pray in in, in humility God, in just this sobering reality that you'd help us to see what is true of us. That we are rebellious, that we are depraved, that we are wicked. But God, that you are faithful. God, that you redeem. God, that you restore. God, that you are compassionate and that you are kind And that invites our repentance, which enables restoration and reconciliation. So God, we thank you. God, we thank you that you love us enough to tell us what we need to hear. Not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. God, we pray that we would hear it, and God, that we would hear all of it. Not just our sin, and not just the glories of Christ's work, but the fullness of all of that. And that we would live, God, then that we would live for your glory, delighting in you and the wonder and the kindness and the grace that is ours in you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen.